Whitney. I'm Danielle. And we are the founders of Sakara Life, on a mission to nourish your body and transform your life. Sakara is a Sanskrit word that describes the action of turning your thoughts into things and manifesting your reality. We believe that who we surround ourselves with, what we watch, what we listen to, what we eat, the information that we take in impacts the way we think and therefore who we are. The conversations that follow are with bold thinkers who have had an impact on how we view the world, ourselves, and what it means to live the Saqqara life. The intention of these conversations is to push each of us to greater heights so that we can turn our thoughts into things and all shine our light a little brighter. We are so excited to be on this journey with you. Welcome to the Saqqara life. So today we have Hani Avital on the Sakara podcast for a second time. Her first episode was so popular. And if you have not listened to that, that is episode number 10. Uh, Hani is a dear friend, as well as a clinical sexologist and certified sex coach. She's the founder of Sheila, a sexuality empowerment platform that seeks to help people embrace the fullness of their sexuality in order to live their most pleasurable lives. In today's conversation, Hani answers some of your burning questions, because we asked you, uh, around sex, desire, and how we can tap into our own sexual current. Please join us in welcoming Hani Avital. Welcome back. (laughs) Yeah, so excited to be here. We are excited to welcome you back, and we have the good fortune and luck to be able to get to talk to you all the time whenever we want. But last time we had dinner and we're talking about your work, it really hit me just like how much you must have learned over the past. It's been probably a year and a half since our last recording, and you've been working so closely with more and more clients. And there's also like been an the, entire pandemic in between. People <laughs> have been at home alone, wanting yes. more pleasure than ever. <laughs> so I wanted you to come back on and share some of your wisdom that you've gathered over the last 18 months. So as you know, we start off by always asking about mission. And since this is your second time, wanted to know, has your mission changed? Has Have you added to it or is it still exactly the same. Last time you talked about empowering women to claim the fullness of their sexuality, sensuality, and pleasure. Um, It's expanded. I think at its core, it's remained the same, but it's really to support people in general, embracing the fullness of their sexuality so that they can live their greatest lives. And that's one of the really significant changes I think that's happened since I was with you both last time is I have now opened my practice to also work with men one-on-one. I was working with couples. I had some of my clients before, heterosexual clients who wanted to bring in their partners. And so I've been working with couples for many years now. But this shift happened for several reasons. But the main reason is that I was pregnant and I found out that I was having a boy. And when I found out that I was having a boy, I was actually devastated (laughs) because I was so set on raising a girl and supporting her to become a sexually empowered woman. And I literally looked at my partner who was really worried (laughs) the day that we found out that we were having a boy uh, because I looked at him and I said, how are we going to change the world with another white male? (laughs) And, (laughs) And luckily, it didn't take me long to understand that actually we can't have the shift that we really want without supporting our men. And we have to heal the feminine and the masculine, both in ourselves and in each other equally. And that really opened my mind. I mean, I'm trained to work with both men and women and those who don't identify as either, but I felt drawn at the time to really work with women. First of all, because I think that some of the greatest teaching comes from learned experience and I identify as a woman. 
And secondly, because we still live in a patriarchal paradigm. And so, so much of what we learn about sex and sexuality is focused on the male gaze and the male perspective. But in kind of really sitting with how I wanted to raise my son, I realized that we all internalize the same societal bullshit about sex and sexuality. And men need just as much support and healing as women do. Mm. So talk to us about some of the themes that you're seeing right now. Like what has it been like to work with clients over the past 18 months through a pandemic and start to include more and more men? Like what are some of the themes that you're seeing people confronted by in their sexuality? It's interesting. You know, I I work with you know, people come to me with all kinds of sexual concerns. And when I think really about the common thread, it's that everyone that walks through my door feels like there is more to experience sexually than what they're experiencing right now. And they don't know how to get there. They don't have the tools. They don't have the language. They don't have the understanding of how they get from this point to that point. And it can be for many different reasons, right? I work with people that are recovering from sexual trauma and healing from sexual trauma. I work with pre-orgasmic women. I work with couples who just had a baby and are trying to reconnect as their, their whole kind of structure has shifted. But in every single case, they know that they want to be there and they don't know how to get there. That's like the common thread Hmm. that's shared. Do you think that people have experienced where they want to get back to? Or is it this sense of, I imagine that there's more, Hmm. but I don't necessarily know what it is? That's a really good question. I think there are definitely um, people who want to get back to. I work with a lot of postpartum women and that shows up a lot in that space and i really encourage clients to think of it differently to think of who are you becoming (laughs) like there's a transition happening and there's a loss in that like there's actually you know a, a dutch anthropologist coined the term rite of passage and a true rite of passage has three phases one is separation and in the phase of separation we're letting go of who we were up until that point of our identity, how, you know, if we're talking about sexuality and specifically postpartum, we were single (laughs) and then we get pregnant and we're no longer just like the maiden, right? We're becoming something new, but we haven't yet arrived there. So, and in that phase, there's a grieving. So first of all, let yourselves grieve. Like you let yourselves really let go of what was, and know that you're transitioning. That's the next phase. You're transitioning into a new phase, into the becoming, into the mother. And then there's the integration where you are really integrating these new parts of yourself. So I encourage clients to, instead of trying to figure out how to get back to who they were, to think of who they are now. Who are they becoming? Like, who is this person right now this new sexual being, what is your sexual truth in this moment? Because it's going to be different than it was last year, and it's going to be different than it was 10 years ago. That's the beautiful thing about sexuality. It's not stagnant. It's not meant to be. It's in flow. And bring the curiosity, the ongoing curiosity to who you are right now and who are you becoming. Yeah, and what happens when your partner knows you as you once were, but now you have become something different. You know, I'm in this phase where I'm still breastfeeding. We're still co-sleeping. You know, I think that just from a hormonal perspective, I feel different. I haven't gotten my period back yet. So I'm still really in this mother phase. Yeah. But what kind of tips or thoughts do you have around that phase for both the mother and for her partner? Communication is the main, main thing. Communicating, yeah, who are you right now? Like, who are you sexually right now? What is pleasurable to you right now? 
Kimberly Ann Johnson, who I love, I love her work, she talks about how during the postpartum phase, it's really important to feminize the sexual encounter. Mm -hmm. And what she means by that is really putting at the center of the encounter, the woman's pleasure, which is not usually the case. That's not what we're taught in our culture, right? But because of exactly what you voice, like all of the physical changes, the emotional changes, that because you're the one that birthed this life into this world, the major transformation you've undergone. Now, your partner has too. He's become a father. And that's definitely changed his identity. But the way to kind of bridge is to communicate, to communicate. And, and what's hard about that is there's so much vulnerability around communicating our sexual truth. And it, it feels really scary and there's risk, but any partnership is a dance. So if one person is changing their steps in that dance, you can't continue dancing the same dance. The other person is going to have to learn how to match their steps to be in sync. And the way to do that is to really talk about that and create a safe space where you can get really honest. Mm -hmm. I feel like one of the big things I learned from you was allowing sex to be so many things, not yeah. just one thing. And that certainly becomes true postpartum where similarly to Whitney, you know, we're co-sleeping, still breastfeeding, like our life is nowhere near what it once was in terms of having the time, et cetera. And so it's really forced us to find the erotic in the everyday and find these moments that we really get to like tease out. And, and it's forced me to really be in the moment too, like in the moments where, you know, I get a neck kiss or something like that. Before kids, I might have been like, oh, yeah, that's nice. Let's keep going throughout our day. And now I revel in it much more because, you know, because it's like, oh, my God, I had four whole seconds um, of eroticism, you know, where there was probably a kid crying somewhere, but we just ignored it um, for those few seconds and prioritized each other. And it's helped me recognize those small moments that this is a phase, two young kids, et cetera, et cetera. And so I feel like with the training I'm having right now is to really learn how pleasurable those small moments become. And in this transition, once I become, as you said, and, and the rite of passage kind of I'm through that, what I'll have learned in the transition is how to revel in those many moments yeah and that I didn't have before and that's great because it's it's looking again at this phase not as just like a loss but as an opportunity like what mm -hmm. is the opportunity here because you can't relate sexually to each other in the same way then how do you relate differently does that open the door to a different kind of experience of one another and it also goes back to how do you define sex I think we have a real issue with how we define sex in our culture. In my postpartum groups, I'll often ask, so what is sex to you? And women will say it's intimacy, it's expression, it's love, ecstasy, connection. And then the follow-up question that I'll ask is, how often are you having sex right now? And everyone will write down the number and I'll see distress just spread through like the group. And I'll ask, so did you answer the second question based on your definition of the first question? And there'll be silence because if it's a room full of heterosexual women, absolutely not. The way they're defining sex is penetrative intercourse. And the fact is that is not sex, right? Like sex is so much more than that. When we talk about having a new lover and, you know, having sex all day, I don't believe that the, there was actually penis in vagina all day long. No. Right. And, and when we're talking about, you know, um, when there is no actual penetration, does that mean that's not sex? Like we have to begin to think about sex differently. So what you're talking about, the foreplay, the kisses, the flirtation, that's sex. Like, it's not just, if we can open our minds to think about sex as so much more than penetrative intercourse, 
we will be opening up our lives in a very different way because also our satisfaction is based on our expectation. Mm -hmm. And if our expectation around sex is that it is only penetrative intercourse and I'm not having enough of like the mind goes, I'm not having enough of that right now. There's something wrong in my life. That causes a lot of dissatisfaction and distress. But if I'm thinking, wait, sex is intimacy. It is connection. It's play. It's eroticism. It's orgasm. Then you can be like, oh my gosh, I'm doing that every day. And the satisfaction changes. There isn't distress. It's a really important definition to really look into for yourselves. I remember one time you told me that for you, sex is a language and it's a language that you speak. What does that mean to you? What does sex Mm. look like, like sitting on your side? How is it a language? I want to give this analogy. I think that every human being comes into this world with their own unique sexual current. Mm. And think of it as a body of water. You might be a waterfall and you might be an ocean or you could be a still river or a bubbly creek or a, you know, oasis in a desert. And that is connected to our pure essence, right? And there's a flow to that that is very unique to each and every person. But what happens throughout our lives is that all this junk gets thrown into our current, whether that's trauma, that's conditioning, beliefs that we've inherited, all of this debris gets thrown in. And what happens when you throw debris into this body of water is that the flow gets diverted or there's an actual blockage. And learning what your current is Learning what your language is, is essential to living a fully empowered sexual life. And it's unique to each person. Like your language is not meant to be anything like my language. That's why it's exciting. Imagine if we were in a world that's all waterfalls, how boring that would be. Like it would be really boring. Or imagine, imagine, you know, what happens when a waterfall merges with a river? That's going to going to feel and look very different than when our waterfall merges with an oasis. And that's the beauty of being able to bring our unique language, our unique sexual current. But to do that, we have to explore what the debris is. What's got thrown into Mm. our current? How do we begin to listen to our language? We have to tune into it. We have to understand what's keeping us from speaking fluently. And what do you think is some of that debris? Oh my gosh. <laughs> like so much. I, yeah, because I think it could be maybe a better question is, yeah, like talk us through the debris and then also what it looks like to clear it. Cause you know, it you might I might instinctually what came to me was I grew up in a a household with a mother who was very shamed for her sexuality. And so therefore like put it away and had no relationship to it really. And I was brought up to think like you were supposed to wait until you were married and et cetera, et cetera. And so that's so clearly in me, even though that's not how I decided to live out my life. But there's so much shame, even though... I haven't directly experienced it or felt it. It's like it's in my lineage. Yeah, it's inherited. Yeah. And so, you know, I can think about the debris and then how do you, how do you start to clear that? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's exactly what you're doing is the first thing is you have to bring awareness to what the debris is. So you're naming a message that you received as a young girl from your mother that you inherited from her. And that kind of got thrown into your current and into your body too, you know? And and so to extract that, the first part is always awareness. Then the second part is you have to begin to ask the questions of, wait, do I believe this to be true? First of all, this belief that I inherited, do I now in my life, in this moment, 
Do I believe that to be true? Do I believe that premarital sex is wrong and is a sin? If the answer is no, okay. So that's not my value anymore. That's not part of what sexual health looks like for me. But is that still affecting me? How is that affecting me? Where is that showing up? Am I holding back part of how I express myself because I feel ashamed, because I feel still that I'm doing something wrong? And if I do, it's okay, how do I move past that? How do I embrace this part of myself, breathe into the shame, allow myself to feel that? That's another thing. Don't avoid it. Like actually feel, feel where the shame is coming up for you in your life and let yourself feel that and then rewire that. It reminds me a lot of Dr. Dispenza, Dr. Joe Dispenza. Yeah. Talks about the same thing. And I love taking that lens onto our sexuality because he tends to talk about it as our personality and how we show up in the world. But I love the specificity of using those same tactics around our sexuality that because you kind of feel like you're born with your sexuality or something. Like you are. I can I can imagine I can when Dr. Dispenza says your personality is your personal reality and vice versa. I can imagine how I create my reality. And then somehow within the realm of sexuality, it feels less so. Like it feels, I haven't necessarily put those two together to think like, oh, I am creating my sexual experience, even though it's so obvious now that I'm saying it out loud. Yeah. And it's, I think it's bringing the same bravery and curiosity that we have in other areas of our life to our sexuality. And because there's so much taboo wrapped around sex and sexuality, we often don't, right? And so, and that's what happens. Like clients come and they want to be in this other place, but they're so afraid to unpack, to really ask these kind of questions because of the shaming that we've all experienced. And it's bringing that constant curiosity to your truth. Like, what is your truth right now? Because my truth is certain, my sexual truth right now is certainly not what it was 10 years ago. It's not what it was a year ago. And it's being able to accept that, accept ourselves in this place. And uh, yeah, so it's very similar to what you're talking about. I love his work. And what about, what about, men. I think it's easy for me to relate to Danielle's story and kind of this shame around sex that young women have. And I think for men, it's different that that sex was a bit more accepted for men, that they didn't necessarily need to wait until marriage or they could have multiple partners or, or whatever it was in our age of growing up. But I think that they find they face their own challenges and maybe even the pressure that that type of freedom then put on them to have multiple partners or types of experiences. What kind of yeah. debris, as you called it, do come up for men? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, yes, there is a certain legitimacy, perhaps, that men experience differently in adolescence than girls do or boys do, sorry, than girls do. But there's a lot of pressure, like for for boys and for men, so much of what they learn about masculinity, manhood is tied to their sexuality. Like they better have a, a hard cock that's ready at all times to engage sexually. And if they don't, then they're not man enough. And so there's this place, even though there's a certain legitimacy, there's a huge disconnection from their authentic want and desire. And I have to say, mm-hmm. it's something I've had to work through on the opposite side, because as a woman, I also absorbed that model of classic masculinity. And so with partners who didn't want to fuck all the time, <laughs> I was kind of like, huh? You know, <laughs> like I wasn't the most accepting of that because that was my expectation that I had learned just like men learn that expectation. And it's a lot of pressure. I hear that a lot of men are are 
well, even young, like men at the age of 20 are now taking Viagra, even though they don't need it for erectile dysfunction, but just for like athletic performance to to avoid shame. And that if they're not, then the other guy is. And in order to kind of compete in their sexual performance, they're taking Viagra at super young ages. It's that feels like a lot of pressure. A lot of pressure. I recently had an experience with a couple that I'm working with and he's uh, in his seventies and we were exploring something together and he had this huge aha, this huge realization during the session that he had never really received. He had never allowed himself really to receive, like let go of the reins, not have to be the leader in the sexual dance, in the sexual encounter, because that's so drilled into men. If you're not leading the dance, you're not man enough, you know, and that that's really just a different version of a disconnect from truth, from really being able to sit with what is true for you? How do you actually want to express yourself sexually? What is your honest desire right now? Well, as you know, we pulled our following for some questions. So we have some good ones. One is related to this idea of empowerment and our own kind of finding our own currency, as you call it. So this person said, I was raised as part of a strict religion that has caused shame around sexuality. Do you have any advice for breaking out of shame and limiting beliefs around sex? And I know it's very, (laughs) you know, relevant to you as you came from a similar background. My goodness, that's exactly my, my personal journey to where I am now. I would say first, begin to really listen to your body like give time, focused attention to feeling your sexuality in your body. Because when you grow up in a really strict religious background, you're taught not to masturbate, you, you know, um, you're taught not to have sex until you're married. So there's really no allowance of even exploring pleasure within the body. And you can't learn your language unless you begin there. Like that is the first, that's like the the beginning of the journey is spend time really getting to feel pleasure in your body, listening to what feels good in your body. And I don't just mean self-pleasure, like sexual self-pleasure. I also mean in life, learn to tune into what feels good to me, like, but in your body, not in a mental, not in the mental space, not intellectualizing what is good. Cause religion again is should and shouldn'ts, you know, a should and should nots. And it's really tuning into how does this feel? Does this feel good in my body? Does this feel good to me? How can I honor that? How can I begin to listen to that and honor that? And that's the the starting point. And then along the way, it's back to what we were talking about, the debris. Okay, what are the specific messages that you inherited from your family? Write them down. Really look at them. Look at how they're showing up in your life. Are you avoiding things because of those messages? Are you moving in accordance with that? Do you no longer believe any of that? If you don't, okay, then you need to extract that. You need to start pulling that out and, and then replanting. Like, what are you, how are you, you know, if you're taking out the debris and you're letting the water flow again, how are you moving with that flow? What does that actually look like? Last time we were at dinner, you were talking about finding your no before you find your yes. I really liked that. And it seems relevant to what you're speaking to now. It's like, it's easier, I think, to sometimes say, I want this, but you were talking about one of the first things you can do to know what you want is to know what you don't want. So can you explain that a little more? Yeah. So if we don't have a no, if we don't have a boundary, we don't feel safe. Like actually think even of a space. If there's just infinite space, 
Like I'm, I don't know how far I have to keep walking because I don't know where that space ends. There's anxiety in that. But when there's a boundary, when there is a solid boundary, I can explore to the edges of that space and feel safe. And I have to have my no. I have to have my no. I have to know that I can communicate to whatever partner I'm engaging with. This feels good to me. This doesn't feel good to me. And if that's not respected, if this, if the part of like the no, this doesn't feel good to me is not respected, I can't ever experience an ecstatic yes. If I'm moving just to please you, if I'm doing something just because it's what you want, but actually what's happening in my body is a no, I can't get to ecstasy or peak pleasure from that place. Like I, I, I'm not going to feel safe enough to let go and really have that experience. I have to have the power to voice my no. It's like wit with what you're experiencing. This happens a lot in postpartum is, you know, the, the sexual dance has been a very particular one. And then there's a big shift. And a lot of women are like, well, I'm taking one for the team. Like this hurts. I don't really want to be engaging in this, but I'm going to, because that's what has sort of been my, the expectation up until now. And then there's a lot of pain, resentment, like all this stuff starts to build. And in that place, like until there's an actual no, no, like right now, I don't want to engage in penetrative sex until that's heard, until that's on the table. No one can begin to actually explore what within the container is pleasurable. And that's, you know, saying taking penetrative like sex off the table, then there's a very specific kind of container and let's go, let's explore within that container. Like let's move to the edges of that and see what's possible. But you have to have your no before you can have your yes. And the trick is, and this is part, this goes back to the languages. You have to know what your no's are. You have to be able to listen to that and identify that. And that's back to the body. What is happening like, you know, when we have a no during sex, it's felt like we feel that in our bodies, but we often don't listen to it. We sort of like brush that off and we continue on, but it's still there. That's still happening in our physiology, you know? Uh, so we have to tune into that and we have to give ourselves permission to say no, to set the boundary, knowing that that's the building block for an ecstatic yes. If both me and my partner can bring our nose, then we will both be able to feel safe to explore our yeses. It feels like it takes a lot of confidence and trust in a relationship to be able to share those no's yeah. because you're talking about certain things that might be pleasurable to the other person or, you know, and then there comes a fear of, well, what if, if I don't do that thing, maybe they're not going to want to be with me or maybe I even have shame talking about sex in the first place. Like there's so many different things that can get in the way of sharing your no. Absolutely. How do you start to build that confidence around sex and talking about sex? It's really vulnerable. It's really, really vulnerable. And that's why it's so potent, right? Like we never have control over how our partners respond to what we bring to the table. But we also have to open to the possibility of that being a really beautiful shift and change. And I think it's important when you bring your no to bring it with love and sensitivity, you know, uh, with your partner. Like, it's not a rejection of you. It's, it, this is what's happening for me in my experience right now. And because I really want to connect with you, because 
you're really important to me and I want to have a ongoing dance with you. It's important that in this moment, I communicate that this is my experience. And for this, for this experience to be enhanced, like we have to change the boundary a little bit. And that doesn't mean that boundary is changing forever. It means that it's changing right now in this moment. And, and also sharing that that means there's an opportunity because there's a new container. So when there's a new container, that means that there, there's excitement, like there's novelty here. There's a different way of, of really playing with each other and dancing with each other. I like that where you're saying no, but you're opening up a whole new world yeah. of yes. No is not a rejection. Mm. No is me establishing my safety so that I can really go all the way with you. Mm. And I think if we look at it that way, it, it, it just changes how we communicate that. One of the other questions that came in was, and it feels connected to this because I think this could be seen as rejection, but she asks, what do you recommend when your partner's libido is less than yours? That is, you know, that's, that's a great question. And it's interesting because I, I, um, I've experienced this in my own personal life in the past. And I also work with a lot of couples that, that experience a sort of a misattunement sometimes in libido. And the first thing is there's going back to this sexual current that we each come into this world with. There is no better or worse. There's no right and wrong, right? There are two people whose sexual currents are different. And what can happen in that sort of misattunement is that one partner, the partner that has a stronger libido, can feel really frustrated um, and can feel that their sexuality is rejected by their partner. Um, and the person that has less libido can feel like they're being pressured to engage when they don't really authentically want to engage. And they feel also judged and rejected. And so it, it moves, it moves people apart. And in that, and, and the tricky part is, is that usually what happens is, you know, sex life tends to be tailored to the person that has the lesser libido. So that's how it works usually. Um, and within that, if you can really come from a heart space, from a vulnerable, honest place that is connected to your love for one another, then you can really begin to talk about that honestly, without shaming, without judgment, and see how you adjust your life so that both partners can feel more satisfied. And that, that means, you know, there's, there's compromises. There's going to be a compromise on both parts. Like you're going to have to move towards each other instead of staying in your fortress of my version of sexuality is the right version. Uh, you have to open up and say, you've chosen this other person for a reason. And how do you make concrete choices within the relationship that support you really uh, having a, a more satisfaction. And that could be many things. I mean, there's a whole, you know, there's many choices that can be made. Some people, some people choose to open their relationship. Some people choose to have, you know, sex become ritualistic where they set aside time that is devoted every week to engaging sexually with each other. So, and they figure out how often that is so that that feels good to both partners. There's many different ways of unpacking that, but it's understanding that each person is feeling vulnerable in that, 
you know, and, and how do you move towards each other instead of away from each other? Yeah, that's such like a life lesson. I'm going to butcher the quote, but I read a quote recently that was something like, I'm not like in moments of that vulnerability. I think it's so easy to take things personally. Um, so like, for example, if my husband's in a bad mood, it's very easy for me personally to take that personally. (laughs) And I think probably for most people. And if instead, and back to what you're talking about earlier, that shift of focus and the Dr. Dispenza work of changing our quick reactions, if in that moment, instead of kind of being self-conscious and worried about myself and my emotions and taking it personally and what did I do, it's, well, he's in a state of X and how can I just be there for him instead of feeling like I need to either take it on or fix it or whatever. It's, it's, uh, it's allow, it's like giving people the space and especially your partner to have needs and to have, you know, state changes and changes in desire and changes in what they don't want without taking it on personally. Like it, it allows so much permission and yet it is really hard to do. Without taking it on personally and also without shaming yourself for not being like for being in a good mood or for being, you know what I mean? For mm-hmm. having a different experience than your partner's experience. Like that's the other side of that coin, right? Because we do that to ourselves all the time. Uh, and and that's equally as important. And, and it's this is something I work with all the time in, in my practice is that you know, we all have raw spots, like these, these very tender spots that get rubbed up against in, in relationship. Uh, and we get triggered. And the, 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 the tricky part about our triggers is that it happens so quickly. <laughs> it's, you know, what, what, uh, well, fires together, wires together. So we have this instantaneous sort of defense mechanisms that just go off. And the way to really get through that is to create space, Danielle. It's exactly what you said, is to breathe, like to pause, to breathe into your body, to really feel the emotion that you're actively trying to avoid by reaching for the defense mechanism, like letting yourself feel the disappointment, the rejection, the whatever it is, that's the abandonment, whatever's coming up for you, letting yourself really feel it in your body and then communicating from a heart-centered place what's happening for you. Because that's very different than what happens usually when we're in that triggered place is we'll go to blaming or we'll go to lashing out, like we'll try to we, we don't want to feel hurt. So we're going to do everything to like protect ourselves. And that just creates more discord. And that happens all the time within sexual communication because it is so vulnerable. Hmm. Somebody said, how can I strengthen my orgasms? Ooh, yeah, I love that question. <laughs> um, strengthen your orgasm. Well, it was an interesting way to pose the question. It's, it, it's an interesting way because it's more, I guess, enhancing perhaps here. Like, I don't know quite what yeah. strength I'm, I'm like, what more intense strength orgasms, are, like are, Yeah, like different kinds of orgasms, more intense orgasms. Like what are, you know, mm-hmm. I would say a, a thing to have fun with is edging. So um, what edging means is you bring yourself to the edge of climax and you stop whatever you're doing. Like you don't continue towards climax. You breathe and you pause. So you let that dissipate a little bit. And then you go back to touching yourself uh, in whatever way you were exploring. And then you reach the edge again and you back away from the edge. And you reach the edge again and you back away from the edge. And then as you you kind of play with edging for a while, then you eventually let yourself reach climax and it will be a much more intense experience. Even better place to end. <laughs> <laughs> I gotta go. <laughs>
I was like, that sounds like my know, to me. Is that you're like, we're cutting. Edge, edge, edge. Everybody edge. <laughs> I like it. Unless you had different light work that came to you. Um, well, I mean, ooh, I think, I think become sexually literate. Hmm. Really learn your own language. Be brave enough to ask yourself what sexual health and sexual empowerment means to you. Because hmm. it doesn't need to mean what it means for other people. But really discover what it means for you and then align your, your life with that. Amazing. Love you. All right. Love you both. As I was talking to Hani today, I started to think about how our shame and this stigma and pressure and all of these things around sex affect our confidence. Um, and then how it can connect to food and actually our relationship to food and how I feel like a lot of women can have um, disordered eating or a disordered relationship to food because of how they feel in sex and how that, that even having this conversation and talking about sex, while it might be totally far away from the world of food is a really important conversation because it's the same emotions that we're feeling about ourselves and our confidence show up in these different areas of life. Mm. It's so true because <laughs> my brain's going to many different places, but I was just thinking how everything's so interconnected and no matter what we do as humans, we try and disconnect them and say, you know, even in medicine, it's like the cardiovascular system and then the digestive system and not until recently did we really start to even do studies about the interconnection of them all, the interconnectedness of it all. So yeah, even the complexity of what it means to be a human being on this earth and the connection of how I nourish versus how I show up in sex and how I give or how I receive. And it's so connected to food because how you feel in your body is connected to your plate and how you feel in your body is so connected to your sexuality. Actually, I think today on Instagram, they Sakara just posted a quote from you that said, feeling good in your body is the biggest turn on. It's so true, right? It's like feeling sexy in your body, like is the biggest turn on and almost makes anyone else irrelevant. And that like allows you to show up whether with a partner or just as your, for yourself as your most empowered sexual self. Right. And I think about sometimes when people come to us and they want to know how many calories are in this. And some people have, you know, for medical reasons or whatever else, they're curious about more detailed nutrition. But a lot of times people that come who are asking that question, they're searching for this feeling of control, that they want to control how many calories they're eating because they feel like they need to, um, that they're wanting to lose weight. And when we get down to, well, why, you know, what are you actually seeking? It's not the number of calories. That's not the end goal. Let's take it a step further past that. Um, you know, a lot of times it's wanting to feel confident, wanting to feel loved, wanting to feel accepted Desired. by the opposite sex. Yeah. Wanting to feel desired, um, which I think is such a huge part of our human nature. Like that, you know, part of this mating dance, right. Our mating ritual and what our, our plumage feathers <laughs> yeah. are and, and how like weight has become a piece of that mating like plumage. In, in a, way. a way it has, in a way it hasn't, because I think what is sexiest is like a full cup, like a human being that's overflowing, you know, like somebody that's just so full of light and energy and love and is hungry for life and wants more. And, um, and it's, it's like that is confidence. And I think, you know, 
worrying about your weight is it's such a def it's working off of such a deficit. I can speak as somebody who knows firsthand. It's like you show up already as not your full self when, and you're taught to think that how I, the sexiest way to show up is with abs and whatever, when the sexiest way to show up is like a whole nourished, energized, curious, empowered human being. And it doesn't matter what my abs look like, but the ironic thing is that your abs kind of start to show up once you start taking care of yourself. You know, we've been so conditioned to think it's the opposite. And once you really, that's been my biggest lesson over the past 10 years. And I'm still learning it all the time. It's just the more I take care of myself, the more I love living in this body. And, and then it starts to just become physically and aesthetically what what I wanted in the first place but I'm not worried about its aesthetics I'm worried about how it works and if it's energized and if it's you know representative of what it means to nourish oneself instead of not right it's coming to your body from a place of positivity and empowerment and nourishment and joy versus almost punishment and shame and um, this feeling of not enough. You're, and if you come at it from that way, you're always going to be feeling like it's not enough and chasing for more. Even once you have the abs, yeah. you're not going to be abby enough. Exactly. Or, or you're not going to feel desired enough. Because ultimately that's not what you're seeking, right? Yeah, or like your, your whole, you're basing your worth and how much you're going to be desired in the world off of something that's actually not the currency. Right. And so, yeah, I, I, I just, I don't know if I have an answer for all of this, except that it was just coming up for me and talking and thinking about how this conversation around sex and sexuality, like opens up a whole world of thinking about how do we relate to ourselves in every area of life and just how relevant this is. And while it's a huge challenge, I mean, back to what we always say, nothing changes unless you create that change, unless you change it. Yeah. And it's also why we do this work. I mean, we talk about food a lot, but living the Sakara life is not just about what you eat. And what it means to to understand and live by the idea that everything is connected. So if you want to feel empowered, you can start with your plate. And that's usually the most transformative. It allows you to experience other things and heal other things, but it's certainly more complex and is connected to everything from sexuality to relationships to spirituality and beyond. If you have a Sakara story that you would like to share with us, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at sakarastories at sakaralife.com. That's S-A-K-A-R-A-S-T-O-R-I-E-S at sakaralife.com or send us a DM at sakaralife. Don't forget to hit subscribe for the Sakara Life podcast and share this episode with anyone you think needs to hear what we talked about today. And don't forget about the light work. It might feel a little hard, a little uncomfortable, but it's supposed to. The whole idea is that we lean into what's uncomfortable so we all get to shine our lights a little brighter. And we'll see you on the other side, Sakara Lights. Lights.